Good morning. I am uh, encouraged by two things this morning. Number one, I'm really glad that Charlie is here um, because uh, I know that there's nobody in Williamsburg happier that Charlie is here than Chad and Allie. Uh, but also, number two, I'm very encouraged by the fact that he knows how to pronounce Majnik. Good job, man. Good job. So, um, but welcome, brother. All right, so um, thank you all for having Cynthia and I back. It's a pleasure to be with you and worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. This part of the Bible is one that I think is under-preached, under-taught, under-studied in the church. It's one that I would confess that I don't know as well as I should. Statistics would say that I'm not the only one. But I hope this morning we will be able to uh, study it together and see at the heart of this story as is at the heart of all Old Testament stories, is a God that is long-suffering in his pursuit of his people, a God who is amazing in his grace and his love and his provision and his uh, preservation. And so let's read the story together. Second Kings chapter 4, we're just going to be reading verses 42 through 44. Reminder, this is God's word. A man came from Baal Shalisha, Bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give to them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate. And had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Father, this morning we confess that our offering is insufficient. We confess that our prayer, our singing, our preaching, our worship is inadequate. We thank you that in your grace and mercy you have called us here to this place. We thank you that because of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we can come and worship you in freedom and in peace. Father, we pray in this time that you would pluck our, or pre, uh, prick our hearts with the gospel. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come down to do something amazing in this place. Father, I pray that you would do amazing work in this time as we study your word from 2 Kings. I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning we look at this three-verse story from 2 Kings, a Miracle, to say the least. God feeds a hundred men with 20 rolls of bread. But I think as we, as we dig into the story, there is more here than just a miracle. I think as we look into the details, as is so often the case, particularly in the Old Testament, we see details that are literally able to blow our minds. But we've got to do some digging. So I encourage you to do some work with me this morning. Sorry, I didn't mean to give everybody work, but nonetheless, here we are. 
We're going to dig into this because I think, and I think that as I read theologians and scholars, it seems to be consensus that the harder the passage, the more beautiful the fruit, the more incredible the dividends. And so as we dig into hard passages, let's do that with uh, encouragement, knowing that the Lord will have something incredible for us. A few months ago, Cynthia and I were at my parents' house in Chester, about an hour from here, And somehow we got to looking through a drawer that my mom had in our family room that contained some things from my childhood and growing up. I don't know why we were looking through this. I don't think my wife needed a reminder of how remarkably unremarkable I am. But we were still spending some time going through this stuff, and we found a folder with my old report cards. I shrunk in terror as I realized that my wife, the former valedictorian, was going to read my high school grades, which were certainly not valedictorian-worthy. Oh, if I could describe to you the face of terror as she looked through report card after report card with grade after grade, not only awful grades, that aside, followed by comments such as, has a talent for distracting others, (laughs) needs to focus, needs to do homework. So not only was she struck by my terrible grade, she was also struck by the fact that I seemed to have a legacy of just unmitigated laziness in my academic career. And I confess that that to be incredibly true. I don't encourage that, by the way. However, there was a time in which laziness had nothing to do with my poor performance in school. I will never forget battling the monster known as Algebra 1 in ninth grade. I'll never forget the time my teacher set down that first test of the year in front of me and I read through the first four or five questions and realized not only did I not know the right answers, I had no clue what to write, period. I don't know algebra. I still don't know algebra. That hasn't changed. I remember being struck not by my inability, well, yeah, struck by my inability, but also just my complete inadequacy at answering math problems. I remember when I came to Grace Covenant the first time, I was told that Annette, who was my predecessor, was a math major, teacher, and I was worried that, uh, you know, I would look stupid. Probably did look stupid, but it had nothing to do with math. (laughs) But I remember looking through that test and asking the question, how is it possible that I don't know the answers to any of these questions? I still know things, right? I still know stuff. I went back through, I went to my, my bread and butter, which, you know, I started listing off U.S. presidents or college football mascots or any of the important information that somebody needs <laughs> to make sure I still knew things. As an ending to the story, I eventually scraped by in algebra and all math and graduated, but I'm still not very good at it. At 30, I still can't do it. But I think if, if we think about our lives and I think about my life, I think that I ask questions like that more often than I'd like to admit. And I think we all do the same thing. I think we are sometimes so, um, we sometimes so often give ourselves way too much credit when it comes to answering the big questions of life, when it comes to dealing with turmoil in our lives. We ask questions, whether it's something about high school math or it's something that's a little bit bigger, like how can I have this much trouble dealing with the death of a parent? I still know stuff, right? How is it possible that I didn't see that betrayal coming? I still know stuff, right? Any of those questions come up often, and we ask, are we 
this inadequate? Is it possible we could be this incapable? And so what do we do with that? What do we do with the tension of knowing that when things come our way that are serious, that are big, that are life-changing, that we are inadequate, we are insufficient in our ability to handle them? What do we do with that tension? I think this story really speaks to that. I think this story really lends itself to teach us what it looks like to depend, what it looks like to understand that even though our offering is inadequate, God can do things with our inadequate offerings. So let's dig into that together. Let's dig into this story. We've got the first verse, verse 42, tells us that a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits. Now this would be a verse that I think most of us would go over quickly, would skip past. I think I did it the first several times I read it because we want to get to the juicy miracle that is to come. But I encourage you not to do that because what we have in just these simple words in verse 42 is an incredibly profound point. In order to understand that, we've got to lay some contextual groundwork. This is a period in Israel's history where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have split into two. The northern king, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, who you may be familiar with, have done everything they can to force the Israelites into worship of the pagan god Baal. This is one of the most hard-hearted times in Israel's history. These are the same people that were brought out of Egypt by God, and yet they have turned their back completely. This is a period of great unrest, upheaval, bloodshed, and idolatry. And so we're told this man from Baal Shalisha is traveling with his first fruits offering. Baal Shalisha literally translates to Baal in triplicate. Or if you're familiar with the Hebrew language, Baal, Baal, Baal. As one commentator roughly defined it, it is Baal to the third power, if you will, for all you math students. What we're speaking of here is a town in Baal Shalisha that we know very little about other than the name, which describes it as a very, very, very dark place. And a land that is rife with paganism, this one gets a special name for how rife with paganism it is. The, the writer of this story doesn't include that detail for no reason. It's not there just for giggles. It's there because this is a dark place, and this man is from a dark place. And so... This man from Baal Shalisha. Now, as I said, scholars don't know much about Baal Shalisha. They, many agree that it is in the hill country of Ephraim, but down in a valley, about a thousand feet below sea level. Elisha and the students in the, of the prophets are in Gilgal, which is a town that is up in the mountains of Ephraim, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And it's a journey that not only is uphill a lot, but it's a distant one. In Ephraim. I only tell you that because if we put it together, we realize that this man is doing something incredible. Here is a man in the midst of famine. We're told in verse 38 that there's a famine in the land. Not just a physical famine, but implied in the text is a spiritual famine as well. We're told that this man in the midst of a time when, there's, when food is very scarce, very difficult to get your hands on, takes his first fruits offering to travel to give it to the man of God. 
in a period where the likely the priests in northern Israel had been completely overrun with paganism, where he couldn't give it to them, in a time when Ahab had shut off the southern kingdom of Israel, so journey to the temple in Jerusalem was impossible. This man travels to Gilgal to give his first fruits offering to Elisha. What an incredible sacrifice to give a tithe, essentially. What an incredible sacrifice to give up comfort, whatever comfort was there, to give up assurance, to give up everything, to travel, to give Elisha this offering. This man is a man we never hear from again in the scripture. This is a man that doesn't have any churches or ministries named after him. This man is a man that you may have never heard of. I had never heard of him until this spring. But this man from Baal Shalisha is a hero of the faith. This man from Baal Shalisha is a hero of the faith. It's hard to imagine, it's amazing to imagine, all of the people who we do not know the names of, the men and women throughout the centuries that were heroes of the faith simply because they did their ordinary Christian service. They were called to service and they fulfilled that call. There is nothing special about the man from Baal Shalisha. We're not given any details about him. But he is committed to Christian service. And may that be said of us. May that be an example for us. We're often looking at role models from Scripture. And we tell our children that you need to look to David as a role model. And that's not wrong. You need to look to Moses as a role model. And that's not wrong. But it's likely that your three-year-old is never going to be the king of Israel. Sorry to break that to you. What we can look at as a role model is an ordinary man who's carrying out Christian service under the most dire of circumstances. That is an incredible hero of the faith. But something far more encouraging is going on here, not just that a man comes from one of the darkest areas of Israel to bring his first fruits offering, but also the fact that this is evidence that God is preserving his people. Don't overlook that point. Back in 1 Kings chapter 19, God says he's going to preserve a remnant of 7,000 people in northern Israel that are not going to cave into paganism, that are going to be faithful followers of God, and this man is one of them. How encouraging is it for us in the church to know that God preserves his people? It is one of the most encouraging points of the Old Testament, and really the entire Bible, but it's so vividly illustrated in the Old Testament. God preserves for himself a people. It goes back to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 16. God preserves for himself a people under all circumstances. No matter how hard we try to screw it up, and my goodness, are we good at screwing it up, the Lord preserves for himself a people. Think about the people throughout history that have tried to kill the church, whether it was Ahab or Nebuchadnezzar or the Emperor Nero or more modern Isis or Kim Jong-un. They've tried. They've even succeeded to a degree because there has been a lot of violence, a lot of persecution, but they have not succeeded ultimately because God preserves for himself a people. And we can take that as an incredible encouragement because even though the promise is not for us individually to be here forever, we are going to die, even though the promise is not for even Grace Covenant to be standing here in 5, 10, or 15 years, the truth is that God preserves 
the church under all circumstances. It is the only institution in the Bible that Jesus vows will never be defeated. The church stands. God preserves the church. God preserves for himself a people, and God keeps himself a remnant in Baal Shalisha. Praise be to God. I read a biography of Eric Little this summer. Eric Little is the main character in the movie Chariots of Fire, but he's far more amazing than uh, just the star of, or the main character of a movie from the 80s. Eric Little was a gold medal sprinter in the Olympics in 1924, and after winning the gold medal, he went off to be a missionary in China. Another person that didn't rest in comfort, didn't rest in success, served the Lord faithfully. He went to China just prior to World War II as the Japanese Imperial Army was closing in and violence was being committed and certainly missionaries were being forced out. Eric Little was in a small village in China when Japanese soldiers burst into the inn he was staying in and demanded to see the luggage of all the people there, demanded to look through, and if they found something, obviously, you know the rest. A soldier comes up to Eric Little and grabs his bag and opens it, and his eyes are immediately drawn to a copy of the New Testament. And he stared at it for a second, and he picks up his eyes, and he leans into Eric Little, and in broken English, he whispers, Bible, you a Christian? And when Eric Little nodded his head, he sticks out his hand and he shakes his hand and he marches out with his other soldiers and leaves the bag and Eric Little there. Eric Little wrote later in a diary, who would have thought that Jesus even had a servant in the Japanese army? Even in the Japanese army, Jesus has a servant. God preserves for himself a people. Take courage, church, because we are in a very, very doubtful period. We're in a period where things don't look as sure as they may have 50 years ago or 100 years ago, where we may struggle to be confident in the culture as we're looked down on for some of our beliefs as being out of touch or traditional. But take heart because God preserves the church. Something far greater than the criticism we receive is in complete control. The man from Baal Shalisha. God preserves the church. I love a stanza from the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, one that for some reason is cut out of most of our hymn books, but it's, I love it. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, Against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. But it gets bigger than that. It's not just God preserving his people. It it goes further in the story. We're told that Elisha tells his servant, his disciple, to lay out the food that the man from Baal Shalisha brought to the 100 sons of the prophets. Incredulous, the servant replies, how is that going to work? Literally says, what? Can I set this before a hundred men? I've been to the home of Alan and Mary Slade. That's only eight <laughs> that I've been there with. I know what it takes to feed eight hungry men. It's not 20 bread loaves. And this servant didn't need a calculator to figure out that this was not enough food. 
And yet, in full confidence, God speaks through Elisha, and with full confidence, Elisha says, no, set it in front of the men. And then he adds this little line on the, on the end. He says, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Obviously, what follows is a miracle. We're not told exactly how it gets done. We're not told how the whole thing happens. But what we can infer from the story is, is that God fed people in the midst of an inadequate offering. And I think that's something that we also can take encouragement from. Because not only throughout the Old Testament do we see the truth of God's preservation of his people, but we see that God provides for his people in some of the weirdest and wildest ways possible. In the most unexpected areas, in the most inadequate of situations, in the most inadequate of offerings, God provides for his people. And that same God continues to provide for us in abundance today. No, this does not mean that if you pray for a car this afternoon, there's going to be one in your driveway. It does not mean that if I want $20 when I'm broke, magically I'm going to find it in the pocket of some old pants. That's not the point. God does not simply work as a genie that gives us what we want. Thanks be to God, he doesn't give us what we want. But God provides for his people when they're in their greatest need. That is the truth that the Bible teaches us, and that is something that we must believe. So often I fail to believe that. So often I fail to believe that God is truly sufficient in everything that I need. Whether we have a lot of things or we have nothing, God is truly sufficient in providing what Cynthia and I need. I don't believe that well. But we must believe that. And we must take encouragement from that and take heart from the fact that God provides for us all that we need. And we don't need to doubt. Here we are in the midst of a famine. All we have in front of us are 20 small rolls. Another translation than the one we read, or actually this one does say, never mind, I'm sorry, I looked at multiple things. It says that he brought the offering in a sack. The food that he brought was small enough to fit in a sack. This is not a a massive meal. In the midst of a famine, in the midst of very little, God provides for his people in abundance. Not just provides enough to to nibble on, but God provides, and there's food left over. It's an incredible thing to know that even though Christianity is not fatalism, we're not robots, it's incredible to know that God is sovereign over all your circumstances. When we sit in the midst of heartbreak, when we sit in the midst of doubt, when we sit in the midst of fear, and we sit in the midst of of very, very hard things in our lives. Take heart, because God is sovereign over those circumstances. God is bigger than those circumstances. And God will provide all you need in those circumstances. That's the message of 2 Kings chapter 4. But it's not the biggest message of 2 Kings chapter 4, and, and that's what we'll transition on to now. God preserves. God provides But this story is far bigger than just a message that God can feed you if there's not much food or God can preserve for himself a people in an area of darkness. The message is far bigger because much like a lot of strange and hard to figure out stories in the Old Testament, this story serves as a sign pointing to something far bigger and far greater that God is going to do. I remember when I was a kid, we had season tickets to Virginia Tech football. Yes, they are the superior college football team, both in the state of Virginia and 
elsewhere. <laughs> Sorry, Buckeyes. Um, so we went to Virginia Tech games a lot in the falls of my childhood, and I remember driving in a four-hour drive from Chester to Blacksburg as an eight-year-old, and then again as a 14-year-old, and then again as a 25-year-old. I remember there were several checkpoints along the way that I would mark out in my own head as being, hey, we're closer to Blacksburg now. And it's not anything special. It's a shell station outside of Roanoke. It's not anything special. But to me, it was like, whoa, we're getting closer. And then we'd hit that Christiansburg exit on, on four, uh, 45, and, and I would just be like, okay, we're close to Blacksburg now. Sign after sign after sign pointing to something to come. Many of you are familiar on I-95 South, if you're heading to Florida or South Carolina, and all the south of the border signs. I've never been to south of the border. I don't even know what south of the border is. Still, to this day, don't have a clue what was there. But I do know that I'm excited about it every time I drive on 95 South. <laughs> because you start seeing them. In 150 miles, you're going to be at south of the border. In 100 miles, you're going to be at south of the border. Building the anticipation. This story in 2 Kings chapter 4 points us to something. It is a checkpoint on the way to something that is far greater and far more beautiful than anything that Elisha could bring. If you would turn with me to John chapter 6. Some of you have already made this connection in your head. But I think it's important that we examine it together. I'm going to read verses 5 through 14 of this well-known story from John chapter 6. This is Jesus. Lifting up his eyes... Then, in seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and about, fi about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up this leftover, the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. It would have been amazing to see the response of the people that saw this miracle of Christ. 5,000 people just saw Jesus turn five loaves and two fish into a meal for 5,000 people. It would have been amazing. There would have been people, obviously, who didn't think much of it, and probably walked away not really thinking much. There would have been people who would have been just completely amazed and looking completely, totally at the miracle and not the bigger implications of it. There would have been people that were kind of looking around the corner trying to see what the magic trick was. But I, I guarantee you, and John records this in his, in, his, uh, in his account, that there are a group of people amongst this 5,000 who know their Bibles. And you know that there are people in that group who immediately in their heads went to 2 Kings chapter 4. The miracle that Elisha performs in 2 Kings chapter 4 points to one of the most significant miracles of Jesus. 
in his earthly ministry. It is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. Again, not there just for giggles. There's a reason for that. Their minds would have pointed directly to what happened with Elijah, Elisha and the sons of the prophets. And it's recognized at the end of that passage. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. What the people in Christ's day in John chapter 6 needed to believe and what we need to see and believe this morning is the overall, the ultimate message of 2 Kings chapter 4. Something greater than Elisha has come. Something greater than Elisha has come. In his immense grace and mercy, God knew that our offering would be insufficient. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And in the ultimate act of preservation and provision, he offered himself on the cross on our behalf. Just in case there's any misunderstanding about what's going on here, Jesus clears it up for us later in the chapter. Skip down to verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In the Bible, we do not meet a God who sits passively by watching us struggle. We do not meet a God who is thrown off by our circumstances. We do not meet a God who is stymied by our inadequate offerings. Rather, we meet a God who is active. We meet a God who is close. We meet a God who is intimate and God who is pursuing his people. He's never distant. He's never distant, even in the midst of the most brutal heartache, even at the moments where we feel God is the most distant. He's not distant. He's providing, and he's protecting, and he's preserving. The truth of the gospel is that God has provided for us more abundantly than we could ever understand. God has provided, if you will, bread with leftovers, and then some. As we face suffering in our lives, as we face turmoil in our lives, as we face the reality that we will meet betrayal and we will meet hatred and we will meet persecution and we will meet all sorts of hardship, the answer to the question of what do we do with that, run to the cross, run to Christ, run to the sufficient offering. The more you try to throw at it, the less and less and less is going to happen because you have to realize that you are not able to fix problems. It's not a Sunday school answer to say, run to the cross in the midst of turmoil. If you're in Christ, you have a source of comfort and peace and freedom in the midst of the heartache that this world can throw at you. And not only that, but you have assurance of your future. A promise that God will wipe away every tear and will make all things new. That is what glorious future we've been promised. 
The message of 2 Kings chapter 4 is the gospel. God loves his people so much that even the most dire circumstances that come their way, he is faithful in providing in abundance. And he's faithful in preserving until the end. And so run to the God that feeds in abundance. Matthew Henry in his commentary called Jesus the great feeder. Not just a spiritual feeder, but, or excuse me, not just a physical feeder, but a spiritual feeder. He feeds in abundance. He feeds and there's leftovers. And he will never leave or forsake you. Run to the source. Run to the sufficient source. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the gospel is not found in the Old Testament. Because something greater than Elisha has come. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that even though we face hardship on this earth, even though